We are so excited to welcome you to our podcast, Live to Give More. We will discuss ways to have impact in our communities and around the world. We will introduce our audience to inspiring ideas and people who are making significant changes. Together, we will navigate how we can all better serve and spread kindness. We decided to create this podcast in order to do our part and give our listeners ways to take action and be the change. My name is Anna G. Ehrlich. I'm a wife, mom, marketing and events professional who serves the nonprofit world in many capacities. I am better when I am able to improve the world. And my name is Elise Sheck Bonwit, and I'm a wife, mom, attorney, author, and business owner who has been fortunate to serve in leadership roles and volunteer opportunities through several nonprofit organizations. My motto is give more than you take. We are friends who have a variety of experiences, skills, and opinions that will make you think, cry, and laugh. But most importantly, expose you to special ways to give back. We will inform you about what is going on in the world and what you need to know about how to make a difference. So let's get started. Did you know that September is Hunger Awareness Month? It is a month that we should be bringing awareness to food insecurity and stand up to hunger. People are encouraged to share, volunteer, advocate, fundraise, and or donate in order to take action this month. Just this year, many are facing hunger for the first time due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This is an appropriate time to recognize and applaud volunteers and professionals, including today's guest, who serves on the front lines every day to help feed America. According to Food Research and Action Center, more than 35 million Americans, I'll say that again, 35 million Americans live in households that struggle against hunger. One in 10 households, that's one in 10 households in U.S. experience food insecurity. One in eight households with children cannot buy enough food for their families. These statistics were from a 2019 study and does not even reflect the impacts of COVID-19. As to since COVID-19 began, Feeding America projects that 42 million people, that's one in eight, including 13 million children, may experience food insecurity. Significant racial disparities in food insecurity, which existed before COVID-19, remain in the wake of the pandemic. Feeding America projects that 21% of Black individuals, that's one in five, may experience food insecurity in 2021, compared to 11% of white individuals, and that's one in nine. It will likely take a lot of time for food insecurity levels to recover. Incredible stats. We are very lucky because today we have the pleasure to discuss food insecurity with Francisco Paco Vélez. Paco Vélez is the president and CEO of Feeding South Florida. He is responsible for the overall administration, management, and leadership of the organization in pursuit of its mission, goals, and objectives. That's quite the load there. Since his arrival in 2012, Vélez has increased the number of food pounds distributed across Palm Beach, Broward, Miami-Dade, and Monroe counties, from 29.6 million pounds in 2012 to 50 million pounds in 2018. He has increased funding and reduced expenses to ensure a healthy financial position for the organization, bringing it from seven figures in the red 
to seven figures in the black. South Florida Business Journal named Vélez as ultimate CEO in 2015. That's an incredible accomplishment. Prior to joining Feeding South Florida in April 2012, Vélez served as Executive Vice President of Programs and Initiatives from 2010 to 2012 and Director of Services from 2000 to 2010 at the San Antonio Food Bank in San Antonio, Texas, one of the leading food banks in the Feeding America network. Vélez holds certification in nonprofit management from the University of Texas in San Antonio and a Bachelor of Science in Biology from Baylor University. And we have also heard that if he wasn't a CEO of Feeding South Florida, he would be a dog trainer. And we're going to hear more about that a little bit. Yes. Very impressive bio. Anyway, welcome, Paco. Thank you for being with us today to help us address hunger, get more informed, and also how do we take action? Tell us a little bit about your organization. What is your mission and what inspired you to come work for Feeding South Florida? So thank you guys for having us. It's always a pleasure to share about Feeding South Florida, especially with you guys who are so passionate about serving the community and leaving that world in a much better place than what we found it. So Feeding South Florida really has a basic mission of getting food from those who have it onto the tables of those who need it. I'm oversimplifying, of course, but it's really about making sure families have fair and equitable access to healthy and nutritious food. So we want to make sure that we have the right food and the right amount at the right time for those families. We do go a little bit deeper into our programming. We, we serve our families not only with food, but we also provide them with benefits. We advocate for our families and we also provide job training. So there's a lot that goes into ensuring the overall health and well-being of the families that we serve. In this four-county area, we saw before the pandemic 706,000 individuals that were struggling to put food on the table. And in the previous fiscal year ending 2019, we distributed 61.5 million pounds to those families. And as you guys mentioned, the pandemic has really stressed our economy, stressed our business world, and put a lot of people in, in a position where they needed to seek assistance for the very first time. Over 45% of the people that we saw in calendar year 2020 or the first 12 months of the pandemic asked for food assistance for the very first time in their lives and were really struggling and had this fear and shock and their demeanor in their eyes. And, and we tried to put them at ease as much as we could. And we had as many distributions as we could to make sure they had access to, to food when they needed or at least at least every week. It was so bad that last calendar year, 2020, from January to December, Feeding South Florida distributed 176 million pounds which is a huge, huge number and the second highest across the country in the Feeding America network out of 200 food banks. Have you ever seen those numbers before? Never have any of these food banks across the network seen these kinds of numbers, seen these kinds of lines. Why are those numbers so unique to our area? Because you said if so, we have the greatest across the country, right? We had the second largest distribution across the country, but the largest increase of food going out. Right. And I attribute that to a couple of things, primarily South Florida is a destination spot. We are a hospitality tourism industry. So when you take away hotels, you take away restaurants, you take away the cruise industry, you take away the airline industry, and then starting nonprofits in South Florida, we do have a lot of nonprofits. So when you start taking all these industries and start furloughing or even cutting hours, that's a lot of folks. I mean, the Department of Labor shares that in this metropolitan area, Almost 400,000 individuals are just in the hospitality tourism industry. So we saw a huge increase in the number of families 
from 706,000 to almost 1.6 million that we saw coming through our doors and through our distribution centers. So it's South Florida was pretty vulnerable to this pandemic. Wow. I didn't think about it from that perspective. So that's amazing what you guys have done, especially during the pandemic. What inspired you to come work for Feeding South Florida? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I was recruited to the San Antonio Food Bank in in 2000. So I've been doing this for over 21 years. I didn't know what a food bank was. I didn't know what they did. All I knew it was a stable job after college. I was working at a temp agency and someone came up to me and said, I'm applying to this position as executive director. I want to take you with me. And I didn't know the person very well. And they were supposed to get to work. I was their boss at the time. So I put him back to work, but not before he said, meet me at this diner. So I go to a diner. He pushes a job description in front of me and says, can you do this? I'm like, this is a full-time job, probably benefits. Of course I can do this. (laughs) So he says, come to the office on Monday at eight o'clock. So I go there with my suit, my briefcase and a resume (laughs) in this briefcase and ready for an interview. But he starts introducing me as the director of services to everybody. And that's why I got started in food banking. And he left within a year. So and that was in 2000? That was in 2000. And within a year, he was gone. And I was there and found my way through food banking. Luckily, I had a mentor who took over the, the executive director position. And not only did he take over and mentor me, but he also was looking out at other areas for opportunities for me to take over a food bank. And I told him the only place I really wanted to go was South Florida. So this place seemed similar to parts of Texas. And so I wanted to come here. And I didn't realize you mentioned earlier in the show, taking it from seven figures in the red, to seven figures in the black, now eight figures in the black, how much Feeding South Florida was hurting at the time. And it really took a lot, not just for me, from the board and from the team that was here to turn that around. So that challenge was part of the reason I came, as well as my affinity to this area. What would you say is your trait that has helped you the most, especially when turning around feeding South Florida? I mean, it's so impressive what you've done in the last 21 years and from where you came from, not even sure what you were getting yourself into. And now you're leading this huge organization that's having incredible impact. What do you think it is about yourself that was able to contribute to that? What is your trait? Like we all want to know. Uh, well, you're asking me about myself, which is not really a comfortable topic for me. I'd let's much get, let's rather, get a little uncomfortable so we can get you to the comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd rather, much rather talk about my team. We're going to get to your team, but we want to know, like, everybody has, like, a secret piece to their sauce. What drives you? Well, what drives me is the end result. It's the families. It's the look on a child's face when they're holding up an apple or a banana and taking a bite out of it well, as soon as they're going to a pantry or a distribution. The fact that they even have to be in these lines is, is heartbreaking. That shouldn't be the case, especially in this country. We have plenty of food and food should be a right, not a privilege. So that's really one of the things that drives me. The other, you know, you talk about a secret sauce. There's not, I mean, a sauce is made up of, of a few different ingredients. So the ingredients in this sauce are first and foremost, you know, surrounding yourself with the right people those that have the similar mindset and same determination, not only for success, but also for service. The other thing is really your own mindset and being patient, not just being patient in the community and being patient with the team, but most importantly, being patient with yourself. There's a lot of things that can bring you down, but you have to be patient. That's an incredible lesson to all of us. I think that's what we were looking for, like patience. 
This is not an easy thing to do. And I think that's an important lesson for all of us. Well, it is. And <laughs> one of the things I, I subscribe to, to primal behavior philosophies, including dog behavior and dog training, as you mentioned earlier. And yep. part of that is whatever energy you bring to a situation, that's the energy that's going to be spread out. So you, if you bring that, you know, everything is falling apart energy. I use the analogy of a plane. If you see the pilot screaming up and down the aisle, freaking out, then everybody's going to freak out. That's a great um, analogy because that would freak us out. But if there's turbulence and the pilot gets on and has a calming voice, everybody else is going to be calm. The way a leader responds to certain situations, especially the rough situations, and being okay with the outcome, as long as what you can control, you, you control well. So those are some of the things that I've learned yeah. and, and been able to harness and, and use along the way. So here's one of my favorite questions, because I've been a professional, as I told you prior, in nonprofits most of my career. And I love when I've been involved when a new CEO comes in, how they begin to build a team around them and what they look for in the professionals, because it is going to be how the agency moves forward. you know. And if we're all in the right ship and we're all moving together, then we're going to get there faster and better. So what do you look for? What is, you know, like we're talking about the sauce and the sauce has different ingredients. Like you said, you said, I'd rather talk about my professional team. Give me a few highlights. What do you look for these incredible people to have as qualities, as professional qualities and personal qualities as well, which is such an incredible thing to highlight as well? So the things that stand out to me, and it's a few different items. So the, the first one is service. If someone is here to serve and say, how can I help? What can I do? That immediately triggers something and says, okay, this person wants to do something. The next thing is pride and work. All right. So when you turn something in, you're turning something that's a reflection of you. If it's all over the place, if it's not formatted correctly, if it's all misspellings everywhere, and there's really no pride in what you're turning in, for me, that tells me that you really don't care. The other thing is initiative, right? Showing that initiative that you're willing to, to learn on your own, to pick things up, and then take things on without having to be told. Whether it's, you know, there's a spill, let me pick it up. There's trash outside, let me pick that up. So it's just it's little things like that to big projects, you know, taking that initiative to do that. And then the final one, and this is something that I've shared with everybody, it's that willingness to bust your ass and work. That's one of the things that I think may be falling through the cracks as, as we start getting older, at least for me. We here at the organization believe our families need us and we take everything that we do seriously. We don't take ourselves seriously. We have fun in the office. We, we interact and, and we laugh. But when it comes down to work, if there's a box that didn't go on a truck, if there's a pallet that wasn't picked, if there's anything that's going on, that means that food did not get to the family. So we take that extremely serious here. Well, obviously, you do an amazing job. And I think these are really important lessons for people who are listening who want to get into the nonprofit world. I think they need to understand how hard it is, this work, and how committed they need to be. So I think it's a great lesson. Well, you talk about getting into nonprofit work, that's a little bit different than the for-profit world. In the for-profit world, you can sell widgets. In the nonprofit world, you pretty much stick your finger in the air and figure out where the wind is blowing and say, here's our budget of faith. We're hopeful we're going to get this much money, but we don't know because we're not selling anything. Absolutely. It's an amazing lesson. And I think a lot of people will take something. How is your leadership? Has anything changed since the pandemic started in terms of your leadership style? Have you changed how your nonprofit works and how you work with your professional team? Has anything changed since the pandemic started? 
When I started in 2012, I had a beautiful head of hair. I mean, that, <laughs> it, was, it was flowing. It was nice. And the wind. How long was it? <laughs> oh, man. When I first started in the food banking world, it was probably as long as yours, at least. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> By the way, was, for those of you, since no one can see you, he's bald. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Gotcha. He's rocking, a, he's rocking a Dwayne Johnson look. Yeah, well, Dwayne Johnson's younger Whatever. brother. <laughs> All right. So you're a cousin. <laughs> Distant cousin. So yeah, I'm bald and Elise has long hair. So I used to have uh, <laughs> long, nice, wavy hair. And that's the one thing that's changed. But my ability to really let go of some of these responsibilities is what's changed, right? So so being able to trust in the team, being able to trust in, in the leaders that we bring on to carry things out is one of those things, as well as the ability to Go out and speak publicly. That's something that really I've, I've never done. I'm not a front of the camera kind of person. I'm more of a behind the scenes kind of guy. There was uh, a lot of media coverage. We noticed there, that. There was. And I don't know if you noticed, but I had Sari do a lot of them. Sari is a much, she's she's more articulate than I am. She's She has a better command of the English language than I do. She was out there a lot for us. And yeah, we, we got a lot of coverage and that was great for the families. It highlighted the need for those families who were struggling and we were fortunate to get that coverage so we can get more resources to our families. Again, going from 60 million pounds the year before to 176 the next year, now that's threefold, right? So, yeah. so, so it's amazing that you got all that media coverage because you really needed it. Well, it was even more amazing that we were able to find that much food. Because exactly. you go to any grocery store, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, and it was pretty bare. So we needed to figure out how we were going to get this food in. And fortunately, we were. We had a great team and they really pushed. And our team worked 24 hours and skipped holidays and made sure that we were getting food out. Well, it's impressive what you and your team have done, especially during this pandemic. So in terms of food insecurity, we talked a little bit about the statistics earlier. Is this something that we can ever resolve, food insecurity? And what would you say are the biggest challenges and obstacles in order to resolve it? And is there like a magic solution? Like, can we resolve this? It absolutely can be resolved, especially for a lot of families. So right now we're in a situation where families need assistance more often than on an emergency basis. So we're helping families as often as we can. But for our families, our expectation is that when families need food, they're able to access it. So we don't really do these random distributions at random locations at random times throughout the counties. We have set distributions. So for instance, during the pandemic, if we were at 10 Miami, we were at 10 Miami every Tuesday at eight o'clock. We wanted to make sure families knew exactly where to go to get food. And that is one of our, our objectives is to make sure families have immediate access to nutritious food when they need it. And so we also ask our partner agencies, we work with over 300 different nonprofit organizations across a four county area, and we ask them to be open at least once a week. I equate it to any family that, that does have the ability to go shopping. If your grocery store was only open once a month and you had to wait in line to go get this food, you wouldn't be happy. To top it all off, if once you got to the grocery store and you got to the front door and you were able to get food, they handed you a bag of food and said, here's what you're going to eat. Th that would not go over well. So what we do with our families, aside from the drive through distributions, we're starting to ask our families to go to our pantries. And we have pantries in our facility 
that our families are able to choose. Our, able, our families are able to choose the items that they want and for a couple of different reasons. First and foremost, there's dignity and respect with going in and shopping for your own food. The second thing is, is we're in a very diverse community here in South Florida. So we want to make sure that families are taking what's culturally appropriate for them. Some folks may want tortilla. Some folks may want something else, right? And some folks would rather not take cucumbers and, and zucchini. So it really depends on, on the culture. The second thing is religious restrictions. I mean, there's certain religions that can take certain foods and other religions that can't. And some are just not religious, so they can take anything. So it really depends on religious restrictions as well. And then the final piece is allergies in the household. We want to make sure that we're sensitive to those individuals who have a child or they a senior. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you can't eat peanuts, if you can't eat gluten, if you can't have lactose, whatever it is, if you're allergic to something, we don't want you to take it. We don't even want it to co-mingle in your bag. So we want we want to be sensitive to that. So those are the reasons that we we want to make sure that families have that access. So that's the first thing that we do is we want to make sure that food is accessible to families and we're not doing these mass distributions because all they do is really frustrate people, have people out in the heat or in the rain, and they're really more of a showcase for... Yeah, for the media Correct. and for everything else. And when you were talking about dignity and respect, I've participated in feeding in these line distributions and everything else, giving people their food. And you want to treat them with the utmost respect and care because if you have to drive up with your kids in the car for somebody to put a basket or a bag of food in your car, it's a pretty intense place to be in. So when the media is there and showcasing their faces and everything, it's a little intense for them. So what you're saying is right, dignity and respect at all costs. Right. And so that's why we try to avoid these distributions as much as possible, just because it almost feels like it's not about the families. It's more about the event. So I want to ask you a little bit about becoming, let's call it a client of the food bank system of Feeding South Florida. What are the prerequisites that you need to show for Feeding South Florida, for Feeding America? Is there something you have to fill out or you just walk in? For the most part, you just walk into one of our pantries and it's more of a verbal declaration of need. However, there are questions that are asked. You know, we ask, especially if we're helping families with the application for SNAP or for Medicaid or Florida Kid Care or something like that. So we do help families with those. And we, we also, because we have a, a client management system to better understand our family's makeup and household and better serve our families. So there are a few questions that we ask, but for the most part, it's, it's a verbal declaration that someone is in need of assistance and, and we want to make sure that we're helping them. Are there items that you need more than others? Like, like is there like peanut butter, it's a big deal, or almond butter, or something that says, you know what, let's go out and do a specific drive of something? Yeah, so we do have some the staple items. And the staple items for us and the families that, that we serve, at least what we're hearing, are your canned proteins, your canned tuna, your canned chicken, some of the canned beef with sauce. You also have the peanut butter, pasta, rice, beans, dry, items, items of that nature. However, because we deal in, in mass or in bulk, our truckloads can receive and co-pick up 40,000 pounds of food at any given time. It's a lot cheaper for us to go get that food on our own than it is for someone to go to a grocery store. For instance, someone goes to the grocery store and gets a jar of peanut butter, it's going to be about $2 or a little over $2. For us, it's a little under $1 to go get that peanut butter if we're buying it because we're buying the entire truckload. Right. Or if we're just going to pick up a donated 
a donation of peanut butter, then that's going to be even less than a dollar for the jar. It's probably going to be about 10 cents for the jar. So we can do a lot more with those dollars. But I do, I do want to touch on what Elise asked. She asked, what's it going to take? What's the magic bullet to end hunger? And I do want to say that hunger is not the problem. Hunger is a symptom of something larger. Hunger is a symptom of poverty. So poverty is a bigger issue. And what we're doing, and so in order to alleviate poverty or to end poverty, a lot of things have to come together. And that goes way beyond my pay grade. It's more of a, of a policy. Come on, I think you could do it all. Yeah, for a couple <laughs> of people, but not for the entire community. What I mean by a couple of people is we do have workforce training programs where we can help families out of poverty, not only with the training program, but with all the other education that we provide, financial literacy, computer literacy, as well as a solid foundation of support to help families get out of that situation. We're not going to build generational wealth, but we are going to remove families out of poverty. Some of them may be able to afford their own homes, which could start building some of that wealth. But for now, it's just really getting people out of poverty and being more self-reliant. But I think as we look at our policymakers, it's really up to them to start crafting some of these policies and bringing people together, people meaning organizations, whether it's for-profit, non-profit, or other government entities, to figure out what is it going to take to move some of these families out of poverty. We're in a bit of a pickle here in South Florida with the cost of transportation and the cost of, of housing and the cost of really everything going up. And I know our minimum wage in Florida is going to go up in five years, but we're going to struggle here pretty soon when these federal benefits run out. Paco, I want to learn a little bit about yourself before we end this conversation. First of all, which current leaders, community leaders, inspire you? And is there a motto or quote that gets you through the day? Community leaders that inspire me is a little different for me. I've seen folks in Boynton, in Hollywood, and in Miami-Dade that are not your typical leaders. And what I mean by that is they are not put in a position of leadership in a company or a corporation or organization. They are community leaders. They have commanded the respect of their peers. They have commanded the respect of their communities, their neighborhoods. And these individuals by no means have any kind of, of resources behind them. They have no board of directors. No one has appointed them anything, but they have this passion and dedication and commitment to serve that people follow. And that's the kind of leader that inspires me. That's the kind of leader that motivates me because if they're willing to do that, they're willing to put themselves out there and, and take the lead on some of the issues that are affecting their community. I mentioned Boynton first. There's this one leader in Boynton who's adamant that they need, especially in the MLK corridor, that they're adamant that they need fresh produce in their community and they are not getting it. And so we're trying to help them as much as we can, but it's this one person and he's very vocal. He's very dedicated and passionate and the community follows him everywhere. And he doesn't, this is not his job. That's the kind of leader that motivates. That's, that's amazing. That's inspiring. Uh, we need more leaders like that. And yeah, you. And is there a motto or quote that you refer to a lot that kind of gets you through the day? It really depends on the situation. There are a few things that I go to. One of those is focus on the things that you can control and don't let the things that you can't control stress you. The other ones are tomorrow is 
going to be another day. So today may have been may have been rough, but but let's figure out what we're going to do tomorrow and make sure that we don't lose sight of that. So there, it really depends on the situation that that we're facing. But ultimately, it's that you're not alone. There's a huge team here. And sometimes it's me leading the way with the team. And sometimes it's a team leading the way and I'm following with them. And that's kind of what happened during the pandemic. They made it extremely easy for me when it was time to work 24 hours, when it was time to to give up holidays. Now, so we worked Memorial Day, we worked Labor Day, we worked the day after Thanksgiving. All these days that we worked was really not my decision. It was a team's decision. They said, we know what's at stake. We know the families need us and we're going to come in and we're going to work. So that took that's, the burden off me because I didn't have to be the bad guy. Right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So it was but great. That, but that's when you said, you know what, your team gets it. And they're coming in with the attitude of service above all and service first. And that's what that truly means when it, you know, you're up against the clock or these decisions have to be made and people just show up. That's when you truly know your team is there for the right reason and you've got the right team on board. So to you, congratulations and kudos, because while they may be driving you at times, it's because at the end of the day, they are inspired by you. So keep that in mind. You have to give yourself a little bit of credit. Paco, we want to talk a little bit about action steps and what your goals are. But before that, I want to get to know you personally. What do you like to do? What are some of your hobbies? What do you enjoy? You must have a little bit of free time. and Not too much free time, but a little bit. And do you do any dog training on the side? So tell us a little bit about what you do on the side. I know the folks listening to this won't be able to see that, but right behind me, I I do have uh, music, guitars. Guitars, Um, yeah, music instruments, yeah. That's what's one of my, my major hobbies is music. It's not just playing the guitar. It's really understanding the theory behind it. And the theory behind it is very mathematical. Plus, it also exercises the mind and allows me to, to shift some of my mental focus onto other things as opposed to always figuring, okay, what are we going to do next at work? So it focuses me on that. So that's one of my major hobbies. And I really... Uh, you know, again, folks at home won't be able to tell, but I obviously enjoy eating. So I enjoy cooking, I guess, is more more accurate. Oh, so that's um, good. So. That keeps your mind away from this for a little bit at least. And what would be your advice? I think everyone wants to know. I definitely want to know this. What would be your advice to your 21-year-old self? So the first thing I would say is enjoy every aspect of life. It passes faster than you think. Being 40, almost 48 now, that would have been, I guess, uh, 27 years ago. I would definitely say, enjoy life. The next thing would be is don't sweat the small things. The small things come and go. They're not going to impact your life in in a significant way. So focus on the bigger things, focus on the important things. And the other thing I'd say is learn how to be part of the community. And what I mean by that is I truly believe that we are all connected some way or another in a form of energy or in a form of whatever it is, but we are all connected. And how the least of us is goes the rest of the community. And so we want to make sure that we are helping those that need our assistance, helping those kind of get to a better place and move the entire community to a better place. Because how we go as a society is a reflection of how we treat those who may not have the resources. Yeah, who need us the most. Yeah. Excellent. All right, so now what's next? 
any other projects? What are goals? How do you ensure that your goals are big enough, are bold enough? And how do you keep the innovation alive in your organization? What's the next big thing coming? So I'll answer one of those questions first. And that's, you said, how do you know if they're bold enough, your, your goals and vision are bold enough? It's when your board chair, Harris Siskin, says, <laughs> you must be crazy. So if, if people say you're crazy, then you're, you're far enough out there. If you believe it can be done and people think that you're a little bit nuts, then your ideas are bold enough. And for us, it's about using our, right now we use our assets, our facility, our transportation. We use our assets to serve our community. That's first and foremost. Now we're starting to use our assets to train our community. So we have a warehouse training program for individuals who want to go through the warehouse training program, make themselves more marketable in the workforce, get a job in a warehouse. We also have our culinary training program. Same thing. Folks that want to get into the the food industry, go through a 10-week training course and help place them in jobs along with financial literacy and all these other classes. And we're about to start our truck driver training program. Once we feel a little bit more comfortable having folks inside a small cab with, with our team. So that's the second part of how we use our assets. The third way we want to use our assets is in a for-profit venture. We want to be able to use our warehouse. We want to be able to use our trucks, our fleet, in order to, to, to generate revenue. And so that's where we're going next. And I think, you know, there's a lot more to that. But ultimately, it boils down to using this as a as a for-profit model. So we don't have to rely on, on, on donations as much, but we rely on, on our own effort, our own work in order to sustain ourselves. And that truly goes to how hunger is not the cause, but the result of something bigger. So now you're trying to take yourselves and not be the cause, but try to have something be able to sustain you as self, creating, you know, self sustainability so that you're able to do more. So that's that's really impressive. I never thought of the Feeding South Florida as a model that could go into a for-profit, but the way you're describing it, that could really be something very bold and very impressive if able to to come to full fruition. So I wish you the best of luck with that. That's really something extremely impressive and super, super marketable because that's something that will bring so many jobs to our area and truthfully give people a chance to give back. While they may be collecting a paycheck, they will be able to bring their own experiences to the job to be able to really give that level of service. That's something really, really beautiful, by the way. And we definitely want to continue with you on that. So action steps. We want to talk a little bit as we're ending this podcast. We want to talk a little bit like now what? What can we do? What can our audience do? Yes. So we have a few action steps, but we want to hear from you first. Tell us a little bit about volunteer opportunities and possible action steps that we can take to resolve on hunger. Us, I mean, we're talking about Anna and I and our families, but also everyone who's listening to this podcast. Like, what can we do? How can we help? So first of all, September's Hunger Action Month, and the acronym is HAM. So we are looking for HAM ambassadors out there to, to represent Feeding South Florida and share about the issues of hunger food insecurity in South Florida, how many children are going to bed at night without food, how it affects families, and so on and so forth. All our programming from our school pantry program to our mini mobile pharmacy to our home delivery program, all these things, we want them to understand them better and share them with the community so they can get involved. The next thing is that we do have a lot of different events going on September for Hunger Action Month. 
Mustache Monday is one of those where you wear an orange mustache and you post it on social media and you share with folks. And it's a way to start the conversation. By no means will. It's like fun. It, there, there are a lot of fun things that, that we try to do. It's, it's about wearing orange, lighting up buildings orange. And we've done that every single year. And having people go to the office wearing all orange and really as a, as a conversation starter, right? So why are you wearing orange? Well, let me tell you why I'm wearing orange. So I'm going to be wearing orange. I'm going to be pulling out my orange shirts. Oh, there you go. So that starts that dialogue. And then the advocacy piece, we do have folks talking about the issues our families face. A lot of times our policymakers may make decisions that negatively impact the families that we serve unknowingly. And so we want to make sure that we're educating them on how some of these decisions can make things worse for our families. So it's also a way to get people involved initially So throughout the year, we can now have folks that are coming out and volunteering. So we have volunteer shifts, two a day, Tuesday through Saturday. The first shift is 8.30 to 11.30, second shift at 1.30 to 4.30. Every second Saturday of the month is Family Philanthropy Day, which means a company children, six and over, can come in and volunteer. We take as many volunteers as possible on those days, and we I think we've limited it. We used to have... 100 volunteers per shift. Now we're down to about 50 because of COVID. But we keep everything safe for our families that come out and volunteer. And we want this to be an experience for them and for their children. So that's a great way to get involved. And we also have events going on throughout the year, 5Ks here and there. So folks can visit our website, feedingsouthflorida.org, to learn how to get involved. So thank you for that. Listen, we can all make a difference. So I appreciate you sharing all the things that you're doing We started this podcast, so we want to encourage all of you to join us in giving more. So listen to some of the steps that Paco told us about. We want to live to give more, thus the name of this podcast. So some of the other action steps, just a few of them, just donate food. Some of the things Paco talked about already, so make sure we're going to talk about that and we're going to spread the news on all of that. Prepare and serve meals, volunteer at your local food pantry, raise money, organize a food drive, recruit volunteers, donate money, and contact, we talked about this a little bit, contact your member of Congress to support federal programs that end hunger. And most importantly, like we're trying to do today, teach others how to become zero hunger advocates and how to help organizations like Feeding South Florida. As Paco said, a lot of this, you can look at his website, some of the things he talked about, is www.feedingsouthflorida.org or any food bank that's near you. This is the one that's close to us. So this is why we chose to speak to you. And also pick at least one thing that you can do this week and tell us about it on our Facebook or Instagram account. And you can follow us at live to give more. That's live L I V E to the number two give more. You can follow us at, and we'll tell you more about what Paco is up to and ways that you can help Paco and anyone who is trying to help relieve hunger. So this has been a very insightful and helpful conversation. Paco, thank you so very much today for sharing so much, for teaching us more about food insecurity and what we have the responsibility to do. It's not up to anybody else. It begins with us. So we're very grateful. Um, We're very lucky to have met you. And this has been extremely incredible. It's our pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paco. Paco.